I'm Karen Cooney, Director of the Viralist Center for Art and Politics here at the New School and delighted to welcome you to the New School. It's a great honor and a sheer delight to welcome to the New School as well, uh, Jane Bennett. Powers of the Horde, Artistry and Agency in a World of Vibrant Matter is the title of her lecture. The inaugural lecture to a long-term engagement by the Viralist Center with the subject of thingness, that is to say, the nature of our material world and us in it and within it. A number of events have prompted this focus on thingness for the center. There was, for instance, the uh, Deepwater Horizon oil spill, a mechanical failure that for three months could not be fixed by the world's foremost technicians. There is slow food and slow fashion, the strange impulse to slow down and get local, contrary to all notions of progress or globalism. There are new understandings of forensics as not just a historical analysis, but as generative of new social and political conditions. Meanwhile, Herman Melville's Scrivener Bartleby has become the hero of some artists who also, quote, prefer not to, end quote, and who consider such seeming inertness a, or withdrawal an act of political engagement. Other artists claim that objects themselves have simply withdrawn themselves, are withholding their participation in our construction of the world, objects that disavow themselves from involvement with us. To all these divergent and uh, incongruous and puzzling occurrences, there is a guide, a precious volume that contains explanations and is beautifully written. You know, of course, it's the book Vibrant Matter by Jane Bennett that I have here. And as we began to explore this topic of things at the Verlist Center, I uh, went to colleagues and friends and mentioned the book and soon discovered that it was on everyone's desk and on everyone's mind. So it's a great honor to have Jane Bennett with us tonight, the person behind the book, and uh, I should also say maybe as a newly minted vital materialist, the person in the book and of the book. I don't want to mislead you. Bennett has many other achievements to her name. She is Professor of Political Theory and Chair of the Department of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University. She's a founding member of the journal Theory and Event, and among her other books are The Enchantment of Modern Life, Attachments, Crossings, Ethics from 201, Thoreau's Nature, Ethics, Politics, and the Wild from 1994, and Unthinking Faith and Enlightenment from 1986. And I am now um, delighted to welcome her here to the podium. Thank you very much for that really nice introduction. Um, I do wish for a world where politics was practiced more poetically, more artistically. And so it's a real honor and a pleasure to be here at the Viralist Center um, for Art and Politics and to celebrate its focus theme on thingness. Powers of the Horde, Artistry and Agency in a World of Vibrant Matter. One, the call of things. There exists a rich metaphysical tradition in the West that receives things, animal, vegetable, and mineral, and composites thereof, not as inert matter, but as lively intensities, vibrant materialities, 
Take, for example, uh, Spinoza's claim in the 16th century Holland that every body, person, fly, stone, comes with a thing he called conatus, or drive to seek alliances with other bodies that enhance its vitality. Or Henry Thoreau's depiction of the eccentric force of the wild that's within human and non-human nature. Or the ancient uh, Roman Lucretius physics of atoms that unpredictably swerve. Now, I wrote a book uh, called Vibrant Matter that positioned itself within this tradition, um, which Louis Althusser termed an aleatory materialism. But my book was not just a response to those other books and to other ideas. It was also quite literally a response to a call from a set of things, some matter that had congealed into tangible set of things. In particular, some items of trash had collected in the gutter of a street in Baltimore where I live, one large black work glove, one dense mat of oak pollen, one unblemished dead rat, one white plastic bottle cap, one smooth stick of wood. And one sunny day as I walked by these things, they called me over to them. I stood enchanted by the tableau they formed, and for a few surreal moments, I thought I caught a glimpse of the not-human-centered world of vibrant, powerful things." Sullen objects revealed themselves to be expressive actants, to use Bruno Latour's term. Or to quote from one of the hoarders who was attempting to justify his collection, quote, the things just speak out to me. Now the uncanny task that I and other people who might describe themselves as new materialists um, in a wide variety of disciplines are pursuing today is to see what happens to our writing, our bodies, our research designs, our consumption practices, our sympathies, if this call from things is taken seriously, taken, that is, as more than a figure of speech, more than a projection of voice onto some inanimate stuff, more than an instance of the pathetic fallacy? What if things really can, in some underdetermined way, hail us and offer a glimpse through a window that opens of lively bodies that are unparsed into subjects or objects? Now, at best, this window has a rickety sash liable to slam shut at any moment, and after it did just that that morning in Baltimore and I regained my composure as a subject among objects, I tried to narrate what I saw, tried to enunciate this thing, this thing power, and to translate the non-linguistic emissions of glove, pollen, rat, cap, wood. Now, in this talk, I'm going to try again to pursue this quixotic task, even though I court such dis disparaged states as animism, romanticism, vitalism. Now, the plan is to refine the accounts of thing power and distributive agency that I pursued in Vibrant Matter, again by engaging some trash, this time a whole horde of trash. My primary tactic is going to be to listen to how hoarders, people who are, one could say, preternaturally attuned to the call from things, how they talk about their stuff. So I'll experimentally theorize their insights and maybe a less verbose practice like performance art, photography, painting, music, dance is better suited for the task of acknowledging and translating the call of things. But word workers, which is sort of what I am, I guess, um, can too try to do that, to do the translation. And I think they, best, they do that best when they, they can sort of keep true to things in the best way if one approaches language as rhetoric, sort of as word sounds, for tuning the human body, for rendering it more susceptible to the frequencies of the material agencies inside and around us. So the goal, to use words to make whatever communications already that are, whatever communications are already at work between vibrant bodies more audible, more detectable, more sensible. 
As noted, I'm hardly the first philosopher type to try to address the uncanny agency, the capacity to impress of things. Heidegger, to name another influential strand of thinking, considered the topic and emphasized the incalculability of the thing and its persistent withdrawal from our attempts to use, represent, or know it. Now, while I agree that any description of thingness should include the negative power to resist or screw up our plans for things, um, I also want to acknowledge the positive or creative capacities of things, how they can, for example, draw us near to them and provoke our deep attachments. So in order to explore this dimension of thing power, I think we're going to have to experiment with a speculative account of the active, expressive, or calling capacity of things. Now, Michel Foucault said that his main concern in the history of sexuality was to trace the outlines of a strange new kind of power that he discerned operating around him, what he called a productive power that did not operate by saying no, by repressing, by refusal, blockage, invalidation. So extending Foucault's method, what I want to do is keep my eyes, ears, and words focused on the productive or creative power of things. So let's try to sharpen our perception of this vitality by thickening our description of it. For help, I'm going to turn to hoarders and their hordes. Bobby's a hoarder. Once something goes into Bob's apartment, it never goes out again. Bob cannot throw anything away. This was my living room. It is now um, chaos sitting here. I have so many beautiful things hiding here. I can't enjoy them. This is where I'm now sleeping because everything is moved over. The other room is the bedroom, which actually I cannot use anymore. And it was originally maintained as a library. The debris, if I stand on it, lose my head. So I'm walking around in an unbalanced world. Just crazy. Okay, you can see why I like that video. I want to sort of offer two maxims to guide our encounter with the hoarders. One, I want to try to keep returning the focus to the non-human bodies of the hoard, considered as actants. The human practice of hoarding as a psychosocial phenomenon is, of course, fascinating. But what I want to do is aim to put the things in the foreground and the people in the background. And that's really hard to do. But that, that's the task. So that's maxim one. Put the things in the foreground, people in the background. Two, meet the people, the hoarders, not as bearers of a mental illness, but as differently abled bodies that might have special sensory access to the call of things. In examining the hoarders' self-reports of their relationship to their stuff, I'm going to try to resist the judging frame of psychopathology in order to better hear what the hoarder might have discerned about her object's thing powers. Now, if the hoarder is a human body positioned at the end of one at, the, at one end of a continuum, whose points mark degrees of positive attraction between a human and a non-human body, owner, connoisseur, collector, archivist, pack rat, chronically disorganized, hoarder, then because the hoarder's body forms an unusually resilient, intense, and intimate bond with non-human bodies, she may have broader access to thing power, access from the inside out, so to speak. Now, hoarders display what one researcher has called extreme perception, they notice too much about their things. They're struck too hard by them. When most of us look at a bottle cap, we think this is useless, but a hoarder sees the shape and color and texture and form in great detail. Now, the early 20th century vitalist Henri Bergson said something about the physiology of normal perception um, that's relevant here. 
He modeled perception as an essentially subtractive process. Most of the swirl of activities and swarm of details around us are screened off. Only a few are isolated for, for, for our attention, he says, to become perceptions by their very isolation. Principle of selection is pragmatic. We typically discard those aspects of things that have no interest for our needs. What we do detect is the measure of our possible action upon them. In other words, normal perception is biased towards instrumentality rather than vibrancy, simplification rather than a subtle reception. So a working hypothesis. The hoarder is bad at subtraction, but good at reception. Her perceptual filter is unusually porous. I was born, quote, I was born with an overwhelming curiosity about everything and anything, says Ron of California, one of the people featured on the hoarder's television show. If this is the case, then that would help to make sense of um, the initially implausible claim of some hoarders to be artists. They don't make works, works of art in the same deliberate way that, say, Chardin composed his 1763 still life, The Brioche, or the artist Song Dong arranged his 2009 MoMA installation called Waste Knot. It's the contents of his mother's house that he arranged there. Um, but perhaps they can be said to be artistic, the hoarders, in their exquisite sensitivity to the somatic effectivity of objects. Quote, visual, object, visual art bounces my electrons, says one hoarder. Hoarders participate in the found art assemblages that they live with, not by creating them, but by conjoining their sensuous, excitable bodies with it, which is why they cannot bear to part with any item of the hoard. More on this later. Let's at least consider the possibility that the person who hoards and the artist who creates share something, certain something, of a perceptual comportment one unusually aware of or susceptible to the enchantment power of things. Hoarders and artists, let us postulate, hear more of the aesthetic call of things to conjoin with them, play with them, respond to them. Of course, non-hoarders and non-artists are not wholly deaf to the call either. Ours is, after all, a consumer culture fueled by sensuous responsiveness to things, things whose power does not seem to be exhausted by the cultural meanings that are invested in them. And so, though I want to avoid a pathological reading of the individual hoarders in order to focus on the non-human powers of the hoard, um, before I do that, I'm going to say a few words about hoarding as a symptom of a hyper-consumptive body politic. In a book called Mad Travelers, Reflections on the Reality of Transient Mental Illness, Ian Hacking, the philosopher, made persuasive argument, I think, that some forms of mental illness arise only at certain times and places. Hacking examines the strange epidemic of compulsive walkers that broke it out in 1887 France and shows how this uh, pathology um, arose in the space between that culture's simultaneously celebration of traveling abroad and its pathologization of vagrancy. What this particular virtue-vice pair expressed was that, that, that in that society, at that time, physical mobility was a sort of area of ethical and political worry or concern. Now, if the compulsive walker was the madman for his time and place, as hysteria has been said to be the prototypical psychopathology of Victorian England, then perhaps hoarding is the madness appropriate to us, to a political economy devoted to overconsumption, planned obsolescence, relentless extraction of natural resources, you know, drill, baby, drill, and vast mountains of disavowed waste. 
Now, Americans seem especially obsessed with things today. Canned goods, weapons, cats, junk mail, email, PDFs, music and photo files, books, data, paper, car parts, you name it, it's all piling up. In the U.S., the most famous hoard is that of the Collier brothers, Homer and Langley, wealthy, reclusive Manhattan pack rats who lived for decades in squalor in a Fifth Avenue brownstone and died in a labyrinth of more than 100 tons of refuse. Now, an example of a more public hoard is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is a continent of plastic debris roughly the size of Texas, and there's now also one in the Atlantic. Um, This is sort of, you might think of as a 21st century commons. Um, It's a creation of the conjoint actions of water currents, capitalist accumulation, a fervent ideology of economic growth and free markets, and the trillions of plastic bags, toys, packagings, machines, tools, bottles that humans manufacture, use, and discard every minute. The U.S. and domestic extremists hoard weapons. Governments and corporations hoard cell phone and web browsing histories. Um, We try to immortalize our data with backups on disks and drives and clouds. Um, And... You get it. You get the picture, right? Hoarding expresses definitely, well, that's the best one, isn't it? (laughs) Where we got hoarding from a young age. Hoarding expresses, I would agree, a pathology of capitalist accumulation. Or as Felix Guattari said, of course capitalism was and remains a formidable desiring machine. Now, of course, the affects of political economy is a point that definitely deserves more attention, but I'm not going to give it much anymore tonight here, because what I want to do is return the focus to things, to the power of things, um, sort of away from human culture, sort of try to artificially bracket that off so we can see if we can see thing power, and to what the subjects of the reality TV show Hoarders have to say about their things. Hoarders. Each episode of A&E's TV show, Hoarders, examines two stuffed households and the humans who get pleasure and pain from the hoard. The format of the show is this. First, a screen with the text of the scientific definition appears. Um, Then there's an account of the impending doom that prompted the hoarder finally to agree to televised help, usually something like Child Protective Services is going to take the kids away, the city has condemned the property, health officials detect deadly black mold, Um, Then the hoarded house is surveyed on camera in all its shocking glory, while the hoarder offers an incongruously flat description of the clutter. Then family and friends testify to the untenability of the situation. Then the hoarder meets with a support team consisting of a psychologist, family members who return to the scene after usually being away for a long while, Um, extreme cleaning entrepreneurs, and a small army of men who haul junk and women who sweep, wipe, and disinfect. So the hoarder is regularly accused of caring more about things than people of choosing stuff over the family members. Now, the therapeutic accounts offered on the show are very insightful, I think, but they're premised on a strong dichotomy between subjects on the one hand and objects on the other, where agency is located only in the the human subjects with complex intersubjective relations and no agency or power is associated with things. But the hoarders themselves regularly contest this framing. Almost every one of them denies responsibility for the hoard, and this is a recurrent theme with each of them. They simply do not occupy the position of the sovereign agent. A typical scene goes something like this, standing in a tiny clearing in a room 
filled floor to ceiling with housewares, rotting food, bags and bags and bags, many un unidentifiable things, the hoarder picks up one particular item and speaks bitterly about her son, daughter, husband dropped this, and that's why the place is such a mess. Or the hoarder uses elocutions that leave the agent or genesis of the hoard unspecified. Now, this I find very interesting. Often sentences are uttered like this, the pile just accumulated, no answer for it. So this is the way in which the people experience the, themselves as not in charge of the hoard, right? Now a good answer to the question, I think, how did this hoard happen, might be to name the hoard assemblage, to name, that is, the joint agency of person, place, and thing. But if the hoarder, of course, does not speak of thing power or non-human material agency or the efficacy of human, non-human assemblages. Because within the framework of psychopathology that's employed by the show, to say anything close to the things did it would, of course, only bring down upon the hoarder the full punitive weight of the normalizing power. In this sense, hoarders retain elements of normal subjectivity. They find themselves imperiously called to buy, collect, and amass all this stuff, and yet they obey the supreme taboo in our culture against animistic thinking when they describe what attracts them to things. Obliquely, however, I think, hoarders do affirm the existence of a material agency at work. They repeatedly say things like, the things just took over, got out of hand, overwhelmed them, they experience the hoard as having its own momentum or drive to persist and grow, and they offer rich and impassioned descriptions of the insistent allure of objects in thrift shops and dumpsters, how the items demanded to be taken home with them. But how do things manage to do this? Let me turn now to three insights about the operation of material agency that hoarders seem to me to offer. Okay, I got three of them. One's slowness, one's First one's called slowness. One way to explain the ability of paper, plastic, stone, or glass to actually overwhelm people is in terms of things, comparative advantage compared to human flesh when it comes to endurance, patience, waiting it out. This is the first, I think, of the insights about thing power made possible by a close encounter with various hordes. It concerns what Spinoza might have called the speed of, of the thing, the relative slowness of its rate of change. Now, a common observation made by the therapists on the show, the hoarder show, is that hoarding is triggered by the death of a parent, child, or marriage, or an empty nest. The mounds of trash, stacks of paper, etc., somehow compensate in an unhealthy but not unsatisfying way for that loss. Hoarding, in other words, is a coping response or presented as a coping response to human mortality. Now, I find this explanation plausible, especially if a more materialist element is added to the psychological analysis. The hoarder desperately clings to things because metal, plastic, glass, ceramic, wood um, lasts longer than human flesh. The relatively slow rate of decay of those things might present the re reassuring illusion that at least something doesn't die. When asked why her house is filled with thousands of rocks, the hoarder named Tammy replies, well, I like rocks. I love rocks. They're peaceful. Now, if the volume of the hoard is large enough, it can provide a veritable cocoon of slow matter. The in-group term here is comfort clutter. So the hypothesis, 
that I'm working with here. The slowness of objects is preferred to the faster and more visible rate of decay that characterizes human bodies and human-to-human -human relationships. I like rocks. I love rocks. They're peaceful. Thing power, then, is a power of slowness. Its efficacy is in part a function of its exemplary patience, stability, duration. The second insight yielded by hoarding is that thing power works how it's operating, by exploiting a certain porosity intrinsic to any material body, be it this one, or metal, or plastic, or this one. So it's in the nature of bodies, again, I'm invoking Spinoza here, um, to be susceptible to infusion, invasion, collaboration by or with other bodies. Any extant contour or boundary of entityhood is always subject to change. Bodies are essentially intercorporeal. We have a membrane around us, a membrane around all bodies, and they're somewhat porous. This applies to the hoarded object as well as to the hoarder's body. Each bears the imprints of the other. Hoarders are acutely aware of these connections and articulate a keen sense of themselves as permeable and aggregate bodies, integrated into the hoard. The things with which they live and which live with them in close proximity are less possessions. They rarely use the term possessions to describe their items. Um, they're less possessions than pieces of self. Quote, I can't even imagine getting rid of my videotapes. They are a part of me, says Beverly of Kansas, whose house is filled with thousands of videocassette recordings of the television shows that were broadcast on each day of her life since the 1980s. Family members and viewers may recoil at other hoarders' nonchalant embrace of things like cat urine, black mold, rat feces, and rotting food in the cocoon. But if the hoarded house emits strong odors of decay excrement, the hoarder doesn't smell it any more than I can smell my own flesh. I don't mind it, says Ingrid. Ingrid's acceptance of what others find disgusting seems to be linked to her extreme sense of connectedness to her place and space. A friend of another hoarder named Jill explained to the cleaners why Jill resisted discarding the rotten food that was packed into her filthy refrigerator. Quote, to her it felt like you removed layers of skin, end quote. The hoarded object is like one's arm, not a tool, but an organ, a vital member. When a therapist has to leave the kitchen of another hoarder named Karen because the smell was too strong, too revolting, Karen becomes upset and insulted. When the therapist explains, this is not a personal reflection of you, Karen is adamant in a way that is both ashamed and proud. Of course it is. And the therapist soothingly replies, oh no, but this isn't you. And Karen repeats with annoyance, of course it is. Now I speculated above with re reference to Bergson's model of perception as subtraction that the hoarder might have a relatively non-action selective perceptual style compared to the non-hoarder, which might allow hoarders to take pleasure in what non-hoarders see as filthy junk. Now, this same distinctive sensibility might also account for why hoarders experience the bodies of their junk and their own biological body as fused, as sort of forming a working whole. A therapeutic discourse might say that hoarders have lost the ability to distinguish between person and thing. But a vibrant or aleatory materialist might say something like this. Hoarders have an exceptional awareness of the extent to which all bodies can intertwine, infuse, ally, undermine, or compete with those in its vicinity. Biochemistry has lately revealed more of the way there are non-human contributions made to human agency. When any human acts, hoarder or not, 
she is never exercising exclusively human powers. Right now when I'm talking, I'm not exercising exclusively human powers, but I'm expressing and inflecting the powers of a large variety of indispensable foreign bodies that are within me. These include microbiomes in the human gut and on the skin, Right, there's a bunch of bacteria in everybody's, uh, the bend of their elbow, which allows your, it does things to your fats, which allows your elbow to actually bend. Without them, you couldn't do it. Um, that's called a microbiome. Um, we've got dioxin and mercury absorbed into our flesh. We've got foods metabolized in this way or that, not to mention the sounds and odors that imbibe from our natural and cultural environments or our reliance upon prosthetic technologies. So what is more, I think, the I, as a compound of human and non-human parts, is continually entering and leaving even larger assemblages, ideologies, diets, cultures, technological regimes that are made up of other sets of composite and compound and porous bodies. Now, a full acknowledgement, I think, of the porosity and contagion between bodies would really entail a dramatic revision of the role of such things as will and intentionality in human agency. They'd have to, we'd have to rethink what they were. But the point I want to emphasize now is the difficult task of, is this, the difficult task of enunciating the call of things is made possible at all by the fact that the philosopher or the artist of thingness is already herself something of a thing with thing power. Right? Which brings me to my third and final point, which I'm calling inorganic sympathy. In addition to bringing the um, efficacy of slowness and porosity to light, I think what hoarding does is allows us to specify a third kind of aspect or quality of thing power. Things work on us by tapping into what, for lack of a better term, I'll call the human inorganic. Hoarders acutely feel the force of the its that biologists increasingly are finding at work within us for good and ill. In an act of sympathy and self-recognition, one might say, the hoard and the it stuff within the hoarder make a connection. What I'm calling an act of inorganic sympathy might actually be akin to what Freud was getting at when he talked about the death drive. The human body, he says, longs to return to the indeterminacy of the inorganic. And here's Freud. Starting from speculations on the beginning of life and from biological parallels, I drew the conclusion that besides the instinct to preserve living substance, and to join it into ever larger units, there must exist another contrary instinct, seeking to dissolve those units and bring them back to their primeval, inorganic state. That is to say, as well as eros brings together, there was an instinct of death. That's from, I think, civilization's discontents. So, the so-called death drive could also be described as a distinctive form of relationality, a peculiar associational logic, a subterranean sympathy between bodies that we normally assign to different categories, life, matter, person, thing, animal, vegetable, mineral. Now, sympathy is different from both relations of instrumentality and relations of aesthetic appreciation. On the one hand, the hoard-hoarder relationship has little to do with utility, Items of the hoard are rusted, broken, rotten, or simply inaccessible. They're really not usable. Um, but on the other hand, neither is the relationship aptly described in terms of the usual alternative to uh, instrumental relations or utility, 
maybe something like aesthetic relations. I don't think that quite gets it either. I want to try to make clear why it's not quite aesthetic by reference to Walter Benjamin's analysis of the relationality operative in the connoisseur and his collection. It's not exactly the hoarder and his hoard or her hoard, but it, it's, it's related. Um, the connoisseur, says Benjamin, does not use his collection, but rather makes the glorification of things his concern. Benjamin explains the irrelevance of utility to the collector body's longing to escape the oppressive world of marketed goods as a desire to engage with bodies other than those of the commodified type. Like the collector, I think, the hoarder often reports feeling a high or surge of pleasure when she's called by and becomes bonded to a new item for her hoard. And perhaps Benjamin is right that part of what is happening there is a human body taking pleasure in the useless, sheer thereness of other bodies. But from my point of view, I think Benjamin falls a tiny bit too quickly down the slide from thing power to human power when he speaks of the collector's glorification of things. Especially if glorification is something that the beholder bestows upon naturally inert things. Maxim number one, remember, is resist the all-too-human tendency to think about human power and reduce it to a projection of human agency. Now, it may be that Benjamin's focus on the connoisseur and his deliberate aestheticism, rather than the more extreme case of the hoarder and hoard, is what lends itself to this sort of anthropocentrism. The non-discriminatory quality of the hoarder's collection, I think, jars with the idea of artistry. So even though I argued earlier that the hoarder and the artist may share, compared to the average person, a certain kind of sensibility, they're obviously not identical. Now, as a description of a relationality that's neither utilitarian nor quite aesthetic, Roland Barthes' term of advenience has some advantages here over glorification. So Barthes was looking through photographs and he, some photographs struck him and jumped out at him and others didn't. And he tried to figure out why, why? What is it about this picture and not that picture? Um, what is it that set him off? And he described this peculiar calling out of the thing as an advenience or even adventure. This picture advenes, that one doesn't. So I think that's another way, and maybe another kind of, for the philosophers among us, that might be another idea or concept to sort of develop to think to, to, for a vocabulary of thing power. Okay, I'm almost done. This section is called Sticky Words. It's not normal today to think of inanimate objects as possessing a lively capacity to do things to us and with us. But I think it is quite normal to experience them as such. We don't think of them that way, but we do experience them that way. Every day, I think, we encounter the active power of thing, thinginess or thingness. Why, if that's the case, why then this tendency to forget thing power, to overlook the creative contributions of non-humans, to underhear their call? Okay, so it's all around us. Why do we, theor you know, why do we ignore it? Why do we forget about it? Lots of sources of that forgetting, I think. One source of the tendency, I think, is a philosophical canon that's based on the presumption that man is the measure of all things. So a certain kind of human conceit. Um, another source is a default grammar of language that diligently assigns activity to subjects and passivity to objects. If you ever try to write about vital materiality, it's very, very hard because the grammar is organized against it. 
And of course, then the third one I've mentioned a little bit about, another impediment is what Bergson identified as the pragmatic bias built right into the way we perceive, like the structure of, the physiological structure of perception screens out the vitality of materiality. It, it, it sort of focuses in on how we can use stuff, and that renders, that kind of brings to the fore its passive qualities. One way to sort of access thing power poetry um, is maybe a little bit better than philosophy here, and um, there's a great passage in James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake where it's Shem the hoarder, and he sort of uses words to accentuate the vitality of all the items in the hoard. I just want to conclude then by sort of giving you the big picture as to why hoarding and why vibrant matter is of interest to me at all. I mean, there's an aesthetic interest, but it's primarily of interest to me, hoarding, is, as I said, precisely because it's one site where the call of things seems particularly hard to ignore. And I've turned to hoarders for help in the admittedly paradoxical task of trying to enunciate the non-linguistic expressivity of things. Perhaps words can be deployed as sticky substances to slow the perceptual transformation of thing power, like slowness, intercorporeal infusion, or advenience, into human powers, imaginative projection, artistic production, use or aesthetic value. Now, hoarding is, of course, not the only site of thing power. Insight into non-human agency might also be pursued, as I said, via poetry or a study of religious orders, um, the Franciscan friars or the poor clares, for example, whose practice of, practices of voluntary poverty are could be understood as counterattacks against the sort of all-too-powerful allure of material possessions. Much could also be learned about thing power, I think, from archaeological digs where exquisite attention is paid to the smallest material shard. So there's not any people around, so they can't sort of overemphasize the culture. They have to sort of read as much as they possibly can from the material. The project of listening to the call from things might also engage the experience of what's now called attention deficit disorder, refigured perhaps as a preference for the punctuated time of lively things over the smooth linearity of intentional motion. That's sort of me. Um, Or one could explore the world of paranoia, again considered less as a a psychological disorder than as an overextended receptivity to the activity of material bodies. Or one might revisit the notion of fetish objects of museum curators or art lovers, or examine the uncanny persistence in popular culture of things like lucky charms. Um, Additions to the lexicon of inorganic agency might even be gleaned, I think, if you examine the web marketers' sensitivity to the call from the data of web page hits, as that data swerves from useless thing to valuable commodity. Now, each of these sites might shed light on the role that a not-quite-human form of effectivity might be playing in helping to maintain, so the the power of things might be helping to maintain the sort of overconsumptive, ecologically disastrous society that I inhabit. And this really, this concern is really at the heart of my project. And it reveals the fact that despite my interest in material agency, mine is not, I don't describe it as a post-human project. Quite to the contrary, it's my conviction that to really understand social practices like our consumption practices and our political economy organized around, you know, relentless growth, 
Um, it's necessary to understand the non-human components that are always at work inside them. So ultimately, I'm looking for a road that leads towards a more sustainable consumption practice, and things might have something to say about how to forge that path. Thanks. Thanks.